the th you think of wild garlic and it seems like foraging for dummies, you know, it's like, oh, I'm just gonna go pick loads of wild garlic, but actually there could be some real confusion. I would not have known that. There's something in the air at the moment. Take a walk along any country lane or step out into some woodland and I'll bet you can smell it too. Wild garlic. The recent frost and snow might have slowed its grand entrance, but it's here, in season, and I can't get enough of it. I definitely feel like I'm having nostril garlic overload. I'm like, am I actually smelling garlic or is it just sucked <laughs> in the face? All I smell from, from now <laughs> till the end of June is garlic. <laughs> To get the most of this brilliant ingredient in this episode, I've welcomed pastry chef extraordinaire Matt Adlard up to the Black Swan to help us go foraging. And we're confirming Matt has picked the correct. That is definitely yes. wild garlic. There we go. Yeah. We've actually got the biggest leaf we've found so far. <laughs> oh, wow. Well. Which is also good I news. I am a natural forager. You are, natural. definitely. I'm Tommy Banks, and this is my podcast, Seasoned. In every episode, I take you behind the scenes of my Michelin-starred restaurant and my farm to show you how we take seasonal ingredients from field to fork. It's March 22nd, and this is Seasoned, episode five. Matt Adlard and Wild Garlic. Before we begin, I want to say a thank you to our sponsors. This podcast is only possible because of True Foods. True Foods are an incredible family business who make the best stocks and sauces. True Foods provides stocks to some of the best kitchens in the UK. One, two and three Michelin style restaurants use their stocks as the base for their recipes. And now, their stocks and sauces are available for you to buy at home too. I'll tell you more about them later in the episode, but you can check out their product range and find lots more information in our show notes. To be honest, this time of year really excites me. Despite the cold weather making a reappearance this week, it's time to look forwards. Spring is coming, and at the Black Swan, we're doing lots to get ready for it. We'll expand our team of chefs and farm staff. We've been advertising, hoping to bring some new team members in to help with the summer push. And Dickie, he's preparing his preservation station. There's new shelving and racking going in, ready for the bumper harvest of crops later this year. But all the excitement this week does come with a little trepidation too, because in just a few days' time, some of you may know, but there's an event which could fundamentally change the Black Swan. On Monday, March the 27th, the latest Michelin Guide will be announced, so that's the day that we find out if uh, we've retained our Michelin star. And for the last, oh, um, 13 years, I suppose, uh, the Black Swan has been on that list, and we've held a mission start route since 2021. So it's one of the things I'm really most proud of. And our customers, a lot of them come because we have a Michelin star. So being listed is, you know, it's a ringing endorsement and it's a real sign that we're doing things right and, and serving really exceptional food. But of course, we don't know yet if we'll still be on that list on Monday. It is possible, of course, that one or both of our restaurants could climb and become a two-star establishment and that would be wicked like previous years we could retain a, a single star or of course there's the dreaded feeling that it is possible you could lose a star and sort of drop off that list whatever happens it could have a big impact on me and the whole team 
So this week, I got together with Callum, the head chef here at the Black Swan, and Will, my head chef at Roots, to talk about Michelin and how we're going to deal with whatever happens on Monday. So Michelin week this week, which is always a bit of a weird one because obviously we run Michelin-style restaurants and you're doing it every day. But then when it comes to the actual week, I don't know about you guys, I feel quite nervous. Yeah, it's normally about a month, six weeks before I know the guy's going to get released. I start getting a little bit... A little bit panic, not panic it, but you know what I mean. A little bit nervous, I suppose. You can swing both ways, though, can't you? Because, yeah. like, uh, obviously, if we lost one, <laughs> that would be devastating, <laughs> wouldn't it? Like, yeah. But equally, you can dare to dream a little bit as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Cal, you talk about two stars quite a bit. I think you use it as like yeah. a carrot to dangle to the I, team. I think about it every single day when I come to work. Really? To be honest with you, yeah. Because, I mean, I think there's like a level of responsibility that we have as chefs working in a Michelin-style restaurant. We've got guests coming and eating every night, paying a lot of money for the best food we can produce that day. And like, it's part of my job to retain a Michelin star, really. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you could just employ anyone to do my job, you know what I mean? So, so you, you, you like putting that pressure on yourself? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I think that it gets the guys a little bit more excited, you know. We, we, you know, we have a certain amount of guests in every single night where it's like, they could just be 38 random people or you could have two Michelin inspectors. You don't, you don't know. That's kind of the beauty behind it sometimes. That almost sounds like, I think people think it's a chefy cliche when you say every customer is as important as the next, but in reality they are, aren't they? Yeah. Like it's lovely. It'd be great to know when you're Michelin inspectors and of course you'd want to know it's human nature, but in reality you do genuinely try and make everything great for everybody. Yeah. I suppose it's that. I suppose not, not anxiety, but it's sort of when you're a bit feeling a bit low, you know, you're tired. Obviously, your team are tired. The thought of you know retaining your stars or getting more stars does sort of pep you up a little bit. You know, keep keeps you on the keeps you on the path you you know you set up for yourself, I suppose. Exactly how the stars are issued? Well, it's a bit of a secret, I suppose. Inspectors from Michelin will visit restaurants and make an assessment, but they won't tell you that they're coming, and there isn't a set criteria. But I think we've learned a little bit about what can help a restaurant get on the list. We once had a, a sit down with a Michelin inspector, didn't we? Yeah. And um, yeah, he sort of explained that it's about the, the quality of ingredient, the way the dish is put together and cooked, um, so the consistency of the cooking, and the fact that you can, you should be able to see the chef sort of imprint sort of personality in the dish. You should be able to look at that dish and know it's from that chef. So obviously like, I mean, here at the Black Swan, I think we first won a star in 2011. So you're looking at 13, well, this would be, yeah, 13 years of retaining one star. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, I remember what it was like in 2011 and it's like light years <laughs> ahead of where it was then, yeah. but we still have one staff on the guide. So I think two things, I mean, food clearly changes and like the standard of food in this country has gone astronomically high in the last sort yeah, of 10 years. So, yeah. so I think what was one star in 2011 isn't, you know, wouldn't be, maybe wouldn't get a star now because yeah. I think the standard's yeah. so high, but yeah, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Cause like you, I think the personality thing's a big one. Like I don't think. Yeah. Identity, personality. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can do that without being like out of the box and weird though. I think that like what we're really trying to do at the, at the Black Swan, and I'm sure you guys do it at Roots as well. It's like, we're just trying to scream and shout about Oldstead and like what's going on in Oldstead and why we think Oldstead's like the coolest place in the UK that you should come and eat at. <laughs> so a lot of the restaurants out there that have like one or two Michelin stars don't have the setup that we do. 
in Oldstead. I'd say no restaurant in this country has what we have. The sense of identity is definitely important. And I think here at the Black Swan, that extends to the very location where we are, here in Oldstead. You have to drive to the Black Swan. You know, you have to go through these really windy, narrow roads that are a bit of a pain in the arse. But you see so much of the produce you'll actually be having on the menu that evening in the hedgerows, in the fields around the restaurant. You know, you drive past our Herdwick sheep, you drive past our Dexter cattle, you drive past the wild garlic growing in Moise, you know, you, you drive, drive, drive past all this stuff. Um, and the story almost begins before you get to the Black Swan in that sense, in my opinion. Um, you, you know, because you've already made a big investment in even getting here because it is a pain to get here, really. One thing that does worry me sometimes is what happens if one restaurant gets more plaudits than the other? What if one gets two stars? I mean, it would be great, but how do you pick up the other team? What effect will it have on them? Me and Will are good mates anyway, and like, if he won a second star, I'd be absolutely over the bloody moon. Very jealous as well? Uh, a little bit, yeah. but, it might, it might, but... You know, it might, but, like, if he, if he won, it'd spur me on yeah. if Callum won a second. Because, I mean, you know, you're that close, you you know, there's so, so many similarities with the two restaurants and, you know, the way we do things that it'd sort of spur you on. I can't lose in that situation because like, <laughs> it's, it's, great, it's great for me. But, like, do you think the reaction of the rest of the team, like, obviously, like, it is double-edged because you would be pleased for the other restaurant, of course, but equally you do want it for yourself. Do you think the rest of the team would be a bit, like, gutted or do you think they'd just be like, right, well, we need to see what they're doing that we're not doing? And I can't see a scenario where it'd be a bad thing for no. either place. I that's, mean, that's really healthy. Mm. I'm pleased that Will and Callum are cheering for each other. Chefs can be competitive, I know I am, but they both recognise that more praise can only spur us all on, for good. But we'll have to just wait and see a little longer to find out whether we've still got a star. I'm looking forward to Monday night, you know, um, it's gonna be it's gonna be a good night and uh, I'll see you both there. Yeah, our, our first awards. Yeah, yeah, all three of us, yeah. It's good fun, good. it's yeah, really good fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Some grumpy chefs there who don't get what they want. But, that'll, be, that'll be me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the truth is, there's nothing we can do now to change our rating. And the guests who are coming this week and next week, they'll still expect excellence. So the process of gathering ingredients and preparing for our services cannot stop. It's a good job then that we've got an extra pair of hands on the farm. Matt, welcome to Black Swan. How are we? Very well. How was your journey up? Lovely. Good. Love Yorkshire. Matt Adlard began his cookery career by stripping off and making cakes with his top off. But as impressive as his physique may be, and it is quite impressive, it's his baking which has stood the test of time and won him a huge online following. He's got over 800,000 people following him on Instagram. And he has accepted my invite up to Yorkshire where I've told him he's going to be put to work on some foraging duties. Well, this is Dickie. Dickie. Nice is, to meet you. How uh, are you? Head good, forager and preserver. Absolutely. And all other jobs that he gets given. <laughs> I like that job title, though. Well, listen, um, we're going to have some fun today. Gonna, we're going to make something through some wild garlic. Uh, but first off, we better go and, go and pick it, I suppose. Do some work. Let's do it. Okay. So we're heading down to one of our uh, earliest wild garlic spots that we know. So we're, we're a little bit, obviously, higher than 
than sea level here and we're obviously much further north so some people have been picking wild garlic for three or four weeks now but it's only just starting to sort of show its show its shoots now so the foraging spot today is not far from the black swan just a short trip down the road and tucked away it's the first wild garlic of the season though you do need to be careful you're picking the right thing so you've got to be a little bit careful because there's a plant called lords and ladies which is this and when it comes up it does come up looking quite similar to wild does, garlic yeah. and that's actually toxic to humans so you definitely oh, wow. don't want to be touching that. has that. a bit more kind of rigidity to the leaf maybe yeah. than the... Yeah. Um, so th you think of wild garlic and it seems like foraging for dummies you know it's like oh I'm just gonna go pick loads of yeah. wild garlic but actually yeah. there could be some real confusion. I would not have known that. Matt, do you want to grab that basket yes. and we'll, uh, we'll pick a few, a few leaves ready for I'm the I'm definitely best the place menu. holding the basket. <laughs> definitely. We need 200 leaves for tomorrow's 200. service. 200? So we need to get some practice in. So if I've picked this but lost the stem, have I just, is that worthless to us? No, that's actually better because uh, it saves the chefs picking it down. And, and we're confirming them. Matt has picked the correct. That is definitely yes, wild garlic. There we go. Yeah. We've actually got the biggest leaf we've found so far. <laughs> oh, wow. Which is also good I news. I am a natural forager. You are, natural. definitely. Yeah, to be honest, it's been cold and it's not the abundance of produce we were hoping to find. Better get busy. We'll just move up that way a little bit and get a bit more. Okay, I'll take my basket. Slightly bigger. I definitely feel like I'm having nostril garlic overload and I'm like, am I actually smelling garlic or is it just stuck to my face? <laughs> All I smell from, from now <laughs> till the end of June is garlic. <laughs> Again, like, I don't, is that, that's not it, is it? That is garlic, that yeah. Is garlic. That is garlic, okay. So Matt admitted to being a bit of a novice when it comes to foraging, but I think he might have got the taste for it. It really is inspiring for me because it's a, you know, it's a world completely different to what I'm from. You know, I'm a home baker in a city, you know, and so to come out and see ingredients in the flesh and especially savoury ingredients that I can cook, but I'm not an expert in the kitchen by any means. So it's a total juxtaposition from what I'm used to and opens my mind up to possibilities of what I can do and, you know, opportunities in the future there. With a few handfuls of wild garlic, it's time to get Matt back up to the Black Swan. While Matt gets himself cleaned up, I want to tell you about another brilliant seasonal ingredient. One thing we do have at the moment are brassicas. So brassicas are something that I cook with a lot and you know they're in season from right in the sort of autumn time right through until when it starts, the weather starts to get a bit warmer in the spring. Um, you actually get a wonderful crop of sort of flowers off the brassicas as well, these bright yellow flowers which are delicious and tender to cook with. Um, but right through the winter time, they're a great way of adding some sort of fresh crunchy veg to your, to your cooking that you wouldn't normally get at that time of year. So whether that's like beautiful varieties of kales, you get the beautiful variegated varieties or the Cavallo Nero. And if, if you cook them in lots of butter and good seasoning, maybe a little bit of chicken stock, you, they're absolutely delicious. You can also fry them and they go super crispy. Uh, I think kale gets thought of as some sort of health food and obviously it's good for you, but it doesn't have to be boring. It really can be the star of the show. But it's not just kale. Brassicas are more versatile than people think, and one of my favorite things to do is use them in a winter salad. I also think little tender kale leaves are delicious raw in like a salad, um, which people don't often do. Um, 
But then when it comes to like your broccolis, I love to do more than one way with them. I think often it's just people think of broccoli and it's boiled and that's just horrible and boring. Whereas I like to roast it in lots of uh, butter or animal fat. And then actually the stalks are really crunchy and delicious to have sort of shaved raw. And you can make quite an interesting salad out of a brassica by using all the, the different parts. Um, but my favorite brassica of all is the Brussels sprout, which gets a lot of bad press. But I just think people are cooking them wrong. I think don't boil them, cut them in half, and then just cover them in something delicious like some sort of fat. I like to put soy sauce on them actually, uh, and then roast them in the oven. And they go real crispy around the outside and soft in the middle. And what's not good about that? Or even like make a cauliflower cheese, but do it with all the brassicas. So you have some nice kales in there and some broccolis as well, gratination on the top. That's a way to get people to eat vegetables. If you're a green-fingered listener, then you might already know this, but enter the brassica world with good warning. They're not the easiest thing to grow, well, successfully. I remember the first year we grew brassicas actually, and so when you sort of grow anything, whether it's a broccoli or a cabbage, uh, they'll start life in sort of cell trays inside. So you sow each individual um, uh, seed into a cell, and then you grow that into what you call a plug, and then we'll do that in a greenhouse, and then we'll do what you call hardening off, where you take it in and out of the greenhouse during the day so it gets used to the outside weather, and then you plant them outside. So that can be a six, eight week process. And the first year I did this, I did this sort of six, eight week process, nurtured them, looked after them, planted them outside, and then the next morning, they were all gone. And pigeons had swooped in in the morning and eaten every single one of them. So now we come to the part of the show where I tell you about an amazing supplier or ingredient or producer. And first a word from our sponsors, True Foods, who are certainly one such company. If you've not checked out their website yet, then why not? Visit True Foods Limited and you'll find their range of fresh stocks and sauces, all available to be delivered straight to your door. Clearly, I love True Foods products and I use them myself and that's why I'm recommending them. But a little confession as well. I actually drink a flask of True Foods beef stock every day. It's my pack up. It's packed full of protein. It's so good for you. There's no added nasties. So not only do I cook with True Food sources, but I drink it too. If you're looking for a healthy option for your lunch, as well as something amazing to cook with, I can't recommend True Foods highly enough. Listeners to this podcast can use code SEASON10 to get an introductory 10% off their first order. That's seasoned 10 for 10% off just for listening to this episode. So this week, I'd like to talk about meat and where you can get it from. Obviously, I'm a big advocate of regenerative farming, and I really think we should all be putting grass-fed meat in our fork. But where can you find it? So the meat that we use in our restaurant is from a company called R&J. So if it isn't from our farm, uh, it comes from R&J Butchers, who you can find RJ's Yorkshire's finest online. Uh, and since the pandemic, you've been able to order that to get at home. So you can use the same meat that we use at the Black Swan and at Roots. Another person who I think would be really worth a follow uh, and looking up is a company called ethicalbutcher.co.uk. Now they do regenerative meat, all sort of grass fed and sent by a mail to your house. 
they do lots of interesting articles about the impact of uh, farming on the planet and different sources and regenerative meat. So if you want to read up a bit more and find a really good supplier, I've got RNGA, Yorkshire's Finest, or The Ethical Butcher as two great options to get your uh, grass-fed meat. And also if you look on The Ethical Butcher website, there's a great journal with loads of information. Now, back to the episode, and after Dickie had finished foraging for wild garlic, I wanted to have a word, because here in Oldstead, we're about to take on a new challenge. You probably heard already, but we're opening a pub. It's very close to the farm, and it's going to mean a whole new menu, very different to the food that we cook in the restaurants, but just as delicious. And it's about time I told Dickie exactly what we have in store. So, as you know, I mean, obviously, I couldn't keep it from you any longer. And we announced the news this week. We're opening the new uh, new pub soon. Absolutely, sounds very exciting. Yeah, you're not you're not nervous. Too much work. No, I don't think so. I think we've got uh, quite a stock of of preserves to to keep us going. So I reckon we can start off in a, as we mean to go on. From my point of view, like, um, obviously, my life is either working or like my family life and I've got a little baby daughter, I've got a dog and things like that. And it'd be, I just think it's going to be really cool to be able to merge the two and to be able to you know, go for a bit of food and take my daughter in a high chair and my little dog and stuff like that. And, you know, that really have that family uh, family time, but in a, in, a, in a work sense as well. So it's going to be pretty relaxed then, like all families welcome, like yeah, really, think- like really relaxed. If we're going to get this right, it needs to be a great pub menu. The menu needs to really hit the sweet spot. It's not fine dining per se, but definitely using all the techniques we've learned over the years. Well, I mean, what would you want on a pub menu? I guess like looking at the the produce that we have uh, on the farm, definitely like a beautiful rump steak with like some caramelized onions, like homemade chips cooked in beef fat. Chips, yeah. Beef fat chips. Proper triple cooked chips cooked in... Animal fat, yeah. yeah, pork fat or beef fat, whatever we've got. Yeah, definitely. That's a big one. Sausage and mash, definitely. Again, like just real basic, but just super tasty. Uh, burger, definitely. These things don't have to be basic. Like they are, people think of them as basic, but you can apply a lot of technique to, oh. say, a burger, for example, or you know, sausages. If you're making them all yourself, and you get, then I, th- I feel like the chefiness in us will go down that sort of rabbit hole of getting the fat content just right getting the way of cooking it perfectly, yeah. getting the seasoning, just so, so it's like elevated to a different level. I reckon, I just suddenly thought there, it's wild garlic season, a wild garlic chicken Kiev. Ooh, nice. That was right up my street. Yeah. Another thing we need to do for the first time ever is think about customers with a smaller appetite. Kids' menu will be interesting because we've never really cooked. Ah, okay. never, I yeah. mean, I do cook for kids, my own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I don't, never really cook them professionally, but... Do you think we just do like half portions of of the adult menu as it were, or do you think we actually tailor it again like classical pub kids menu, but just done really, really, really well? I, th- I think it's a little bit of both, but I think we might have to dumb down because some of the stuff we do is quite adult. Like I'm not sure some of the funky fermented ke- <laughs> ketchups and things are gonna they're gonna want them in their burgers. If you know what I mean, I feel like we might have to do like a plainer version. But I think that way you were saying like bangers and mash pies, burgers. Um, some sort of take on fish and chips sort of thing is, is what kids want really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Homemade baked beans. Mm. Let's grow some beans for that. Yeah, could do. And that'd be cool. Confession, I don't really like baked beans. 
And it's not just kids we'll be catering for specifically. Four-legged friends are going to get their own menu too. We've also been working on dog biscuits. Ah. Because like, if you're coming out to a really nice pub and you're taking your dog, then you should have a, a nice dog biscuit, right? So we've been making, uh, Charlie and me have been making some liver cakes. Some like little liver biscuits. So then your dog, your dog gets like a elevated experience as well. Launching in just a few weeks, there's a lot of work to do. Our pub head chef Charlie is already on with the first dishes. I just hope he's got enough time to get everything right and that Dickie's got enough time to gather all the ingredients we'll need too. All sounds like it's going to take quite a lot of work. Yeah. What sort of date have you got in mind? End of May. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you don't, we've got, I think we've got to be open for summer, you know, up here in North Yorkshire is busy in summertime, isn't it? There's a lot of tourists around and listen, you're never ready. Like, no. We've done openings before. They're the most hard, the hardest thing you can ever do. And no matter what date you put on it, you always go to the wire. So we might as well crack on and try yeah, and get yeah. it done. You know, at least we've done it before. We know what we're doing. But um, yeah, it'll be fun and games for sure. Class. I'm looking forward to it. We like to give ourselves a challenge. And anyone who's ever opened any sort of restaurant will know it's hard work. And certainly opening this pub by May time will be hard, but it'll also be brilliant for everyone. Earlier, Matt Adlard got in touch with his wild side, foraging for the wild garlic, and I went with him to hand over his gains to head chef Callum. Hey guys, this is this is Matt who's with us today. Callum, this is Matt. I bring bad news, guys. I didn't do a very good job foraging. I'm so sorry. <laughs> wow, that is, that so is not sorry. great, that is it. Well, I got told about the poisonous leaves, and I thought, well, I'm not going to dare <laughs> pick anything. I'll start today, but these I'm, I'm told is all wild garlic. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, well, I think when you get them real nice young shoots, it is a real intense flavour, so I suppose a little does go a long way. Should do you for, for like, you know, a few meals or something. Yeah, I reckon okay, so. I'm great. sure we can uh, <laughs> knock something up with that anyway. No, oh, hand over to you, but yeah. lovely to meet you. Yeah, lovely to meet you as well, mate. Nice and while Chef Callum gets to work preparing a delicious garlic based dish, I wanted to catch up with Matt and find out about his career and his love of food. Matt began his life as a topless baker, building an incredible physique and building an army of fans for his photos of his body and his cakes. You had a rapid rise, like overnight sort of rise on social media and you had your top off, which, <laughs> how, was, how was that, like the psychology of that, how did that work for you in terms of suddenly, oh my God, I was doing these things and now I'm like, like people know me who I am yeah. and, and, and I imagine, I imagine, I mean, if you cook with no shirt on, you're going to get a lot of attention. Totally, uh, completely. And I think the thing was as well, as I was self-taught, I was probably two years into my baking journey. So really didn't know much. <laughs> and with followers comes an expectation of talent and skill and knowledge. And so I got literally overnight, you know, you talk about overnight success. It was one video, boom overnight hundreds of thousands of followers and so people expected me to really know what I was talking about and again I lack this you know this massive imposter syndrome lacking any credibility of knowing what I'm doing but because I've got 400,000 followers people think very nice biceps as well <laughs> there he was yeah no I wish I still had those biceps but people expected me to know that this mirror glaze cake that I was going to make was the best and so then it was really playing catch up, really teaching myself as quickly as I could about pastry so that I could kind of match what these followers were expecting. And I feel like I'm at that kind of level now and I feel like I have a knowledge, but it took me, it took me a really long time to get there. A lot of failures and 
long nights of just worrying about who I am and what I'm doing and am I good enough to be doing this. I definitely still have imposter syndrome because I feel like I lack that, you know, I need an award or some credibility where someone says you are, you are number one or you know, you are the judge of the show, you're a famous person that walks around the street. I feel like I probably lack that and, you know, I grew up around my dad who was a Michelin star chef who in his time, you know, it was always, oh, you're David Adler's son. You know, you go to Spanish class or whatever, you're like, oh, Adler, like David Adler. Yeah, David Adler, my dad. And so I kind of lived, I used his name and his recognition to give me some credibility. I was like, oh, my dad's a Michelin star chef. And that was in the hope that people would be like, oh, okay, so actually you're, you're kind of legit. You're kind of legit because your dad's good. Um, so now, you know, my goal really is, is moving forward. It's kind of like, can I become more credible? What is it that's going to give me credibility? Because I might have lots and lots of followers, but I could walk down the street and no one knows who I am. I think there's a lot to admire about that. And I think also you will inspire a lot of people because to literally see what you've achieved and to have done it from home without training, without anything other than your own sort of determination to get it done, I suppose, is quite, quite an inspiring story. When I look at your, uh, your page and the, the things that you're making, it looks like it's out of some fancy, bougie French patisserie in the middle yeah. of Paris with probably 50 bakers and all the state-of-the-art kit. So I'm very interested in your home dynamic and how that works. Yeah, I mean, you, I think you'd laugh at my setup. If you came to my house, you'd be like, you create, you create it with this around you. Like, yeah, I do. You know, again, I've been doing it so long, I've been able to find little hacks and little ways and, you know, have a very strict way that I film and follow, the, follow a process so I know where things need to go, how I need to film it, what mould I need to use, uh, what time the light's going to be right to film and capture something. You know, I've been doing it for so long, it's, it's second nature to me. So. so the life of people who are cynical about the life of an influencer and whether it's a real job, I think you're getting an insight into the amount of attention to detail there has to be to create that content. I think especially in, in pastry into the, you know, you talk about the kind of French pastry side of things. I quite enjoy, you know, when you're saying, oh, it's like a French bakery, I really enjoy that compliment of, you know, I can, cre I can create things that are better and more impressive than these incredible bakeries that everyone loves across the world. So, you know, I can do it from my home in Norfolk with less equipment, no one helping me, I'm doing the dishes, I'm editing the video, and that gives me quite a lot of pride in what I'm able to do. And again, some inspiration for people, you know, you don't, you don't need to be trained. You can do this at home with, dedication and focus and some creative flair. And it won't be perfect by any means, but you'll get there. I'm of the generation where, you know, I'm scrolling and consuming content all the time, looking for that next piece of inspiration. I'm passionate about it. It's not a nine to five for me, it's my obsession. So I want to get better. I want to prove to people that you can go from knowing absolutely nothing. And as long as you're dedicated and invested, you know, you can make really good high quality Patience at home. Right now, Matt's busy writing a book full of recipes for amazing pastries which look and taste great. So with this book then, is this aimed at people, because you, you basically learned from home, is your book going to be aimed at people who want to achieve that or is it aimed at like professional chefs or like a bit of both? So it's kind of based off my 
journey to baking. So when I started, I knew nothing. And so I started with really simple recipes, cookies, bread, macarons, or well, macarons are simple. And then as I got more confident with scrolling online, I saw different textures and tastes and colors, and I wanted to incorporate those more advanced skills, but into those simpler recipes. Take a cookie, but add praline and roasted pecans and make it more decadent or you know, how can I make my own homemade puff pastry to make a meal for you, whatever it is. And so the book is really based off that. It's taking kind of a two-tiered approach. You take a tier one recipe, um, which could be just, you know, your everyday sandwich loaf, which includes uh, a pre-ferment, so, you know, like a beaker or a whatever. And then you elevate that and you turn it into a, an overnight focaccia. So it's taking the same concept of a pre-ferment, but you're leveling it up and using a dough that's more difficult because it's got higher hydration. So it's all about this idea of kind of leveling up your skills. So you can start as kind of an intermediate baker. I think you need to have an awareness of, you need to know how to grease a tin. You know, if you've <laughs> never picked up a, a whisk before, you, it might be tough. But if you have a baseline understanding of baking, it's the idea that you can go from you know, an intermediate to you know, a professional baker and create these goods that are better than a bakery. Everyone starts from a cookbook, yeah, you know, yeah, cooking yeah. out of a, there's no shame in saying you've learned from Michelle Rue's cookbook or whoever, you know, it's, yeah. there's, there's honesty in being, being humble about where you started. Well, quite, what, what's also quite nice to think about that is if you're going to release this book this year, we could be having this conversation with somebody else in 10 years time and it's like, well, actually I started with Matt Adlard's cookbook yeah. and uh, yeah, I got all this credit back. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I was just making this chocolate cake recipe and I put this on top of it. And, um, but that's kind of cool, really. And I yeah, think it's I mean, nice to be able to share. Completely. When I started, I just started, I remember the first YouTube video I ever did. I took a cookie recipe off a very, you know, some unknown blogger. And I was so anxious that this blogger would find out that I'd taken their chocolate chip <laughs> cookie recipe. Genuinely like sweating behind the computer uploading this cookie recipe, thinking, I've just taken this cookie recipe, but a million cookie recipes. Where yeah. did they get that cookie recipe from? And, you know, I should have been really proud of that they inspired me to create a, such a nice cookie, but I was so nervous that I'd stolen this recipe and they were going to catch me as a fraud because I'd used 120 grams of butter just like they had but I didn't I didn't know how to make a cookie recipe well the thing is though when you look at um we'll all do it with a quick recipe you google something (laughs) and the thing is the ratios of uh, classic example is that hollandaise sauce right the ratios are the ratios the ratio of butter to egg yolk kind of has to be the same (laughs) so when you google it and you'll get a list of 10 recipes on the first page all different chefs in their special recipe it's the same because (laughs) that's what goes in it so then when you look at it and like i've done it before and you're like right i need to do a hollandaise recipe to go with this and put it in this magazine i'm like i need to make it different to the last one how do i make it different because it kind of is what it is so you put like a slightly different aromat in the vinegar and you do something else you make you make it your own but really to an extent we can't there's gonna be there's only an infinite number of things you can do with that it's it's quite it's quite difficult i remember my dad you know he classically trained he was obsessed with teaching me hollandaise like you need to know how to make hollandaise man and so he'd always do it over a double boiler and whisking whisking slowly drizzling the butter in got the shallots the white wine vinegar everything and i think i was at university and then i realized that if you just used a hand blender you could emulsify it really quickly (laughs) and i came home from university i was like dad you know you can just make hollandaise but just emulsifying with a hand blender and his mind was blowing. No, 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 no way, no way. You've got to do it with a double boiler and slowly add the, add the butter and whisk it. I was like, you can just use a hand blender. And so now I just do it with a hand blender. I'm sorry, <laughs> Dad. I'm sorry. Uh, confession 101. 
I love having pastry chefs visit because they have a different skill set and when it comes to seasonal ingredients they can sometimes have a different approach. Chocolate is in season all year round but I wanted to know if Matt had a seasonal favourite. So if you had to pick one seasonal ingredient for like your ultimate preparation. I'll give you a sweet and a savoury because okay. that's maybe fair. So I'd say from a savoury perspective, so we moved slightly more out into the country recently and we have a kind of long dog walk every day, but there's a farm shop where they grow asparagus kind of just a few hundred metres behind. And I just always used, I didn't know what asparagus looked like when it was being grown, but you see them once it comes into season, just chopping down. Asparagus is such a beautiful plant. It's amazing. And so I love seeing that asparagus uh, being picked and being cut down and they've got the little baskets and they're just going through the bushes, cutting it down and grabbing some of that because that's, I really enjoy seeing the process and then seeing it available in the farm shop. Uh, and then I'm guilty of strawberry. I love strawberries. Strawberries are my favourite fruit. I could eat them all season long. <laughs> all season long. All season well long, yes. Uh, so whenever they're in, because, you know, Norfolk, I live, live in Norfolk. Norfolk has a lot of strawberries, so um, I love getting strawberries from Norfolk. And I've been strawberry picking many time ago with my nieces, and they really enjoy kind of the, the fun of going picking strawberries. Two great answers. Asparagus and strawberries. Yeah. They're two absolute rock stars in the... Uh, in the seasonal world. Before Matt left, it was time to taste the results of his foraging trip. And Chef Callum, even on the fly, has pulled out all the stops. It was nice talking to you, Tommy, but this is what I'm really excited about. <laughs> so we've just done a couple of different things. We've obviously used this year's wild garlic that you've uh, gone out and foraged this morning. We actually uh, have a wild garlic oil from last year as well. Wow. So yeah, we've just made a couple of different things. So we've just got a uh, wild garlic veluta. So just lovely onions slowly cooked down. We just uh, add a little bit of True Foods chicken stock into that, bring it to the boil, a uh, little bit of double cream, and then just blend it with the fresh wild garlic. It's almost got a real nice pepperiness to it. We've just uh, split that slightly with a little bit of uh, last year's wild garlic oil. In the center, you've got these lovely laminated brioche. We just bit them. We've made a little pesto from the wild garlic that you got this morning. We're just serving a little bit of that to one side and then just the fresh wild garlic shoots for yourself. Wow, you got a great color into that soup. Yeah, I mean, when it's just so young, the wild garlic, it just goes this incredible, bright, vibrant green colour, so. And gorgeous lamination on your brioche too, wow. Yeah, thank you very much. Very good, <laughs> very good. Yeah, no, it's uh... Unbelievable. I love the butter. That's, I mean, immediately you get hit with pastry butter and that. Pastry should taste of butter, shouldn't it? Yeah. Mm. And good quality butter, I mean, I don't know where you get your butter from, but I'm sure, you know, yeah. it's extremely well sourced you're getting very high fat percentage you know there's not a lot of it's the dryness of it as well isn't it yeah the pastry butter um i always have these dreams of making some random butter and then making beautiful pastries out of it and the reality is it doesn't really work um yeah. you need a sort of specific butter to do it from and then probably better to do that and then add the flavor in with like the pesto from the wild garlic wow I always say to my wife, I was like, can we please have soup for dinner? Obviously nothing to this level. Ooh. She's like, soup is not a meal. Soup is not I could eat this I kind day. of agree, but if you've got a pastry on the side, it kind of builds up. That is, the wild garlic is so punchy. That's like a proper flavor. That is not. That is a ripper. That is, 
I feel unfair that the people listening do not have a spoonful of this right now because it's outrageous. Do you drop the recipes? You know, where can we get the recipe for this? Yeah, we can drop the recipe for it. I just have to ask Callum what he did. Is it nice for you to see, obviously, you kind of nurture these chefs and they're obviously all extremely talented, but for them to produce dishes like this and you have no idea how he's made it, what's gone into it, and you eat it and you're just so impressed and proud and you know i'm sure there's moments where you eat something and you think oh, i'm a bit jealous of what you've created oh, there, you know yeah, yeah i think that's the stage i'm at in my career um i love that i see myself as the as the manager more than the striker nowadays if you know what i mean yeah. um and and i think like encouraging it's i get more excited about what other people have made than what i've made because i know well, I've had that idea and it's run with me and it's not a surprise. Whereas to see somebody else do something very creative, um, it just fills me full of joy. The soup is truly delicious, so much depth. But it's the wild garlic pastry that steals the show. A laminated pastry with a beautiful savoury filling. This might not be part of our menu, but I could see it sitting on there quite well. Matt, thanks for coming up. Uh, honestly, it's been so fascinating talking to you. You're so, clearly so passionate about your subject. Um, I can't wait to, to read your book later this year. It's really been inspiring to be here. Very honoured, you know, in my mind, you are one of the best, if not the best chef in the UK. And to be here in your presence and see what you've built and hear your story and it is amazing and really inspiring for me. So I will be back for sure. Yeah, wicked. You're, you'll always be welcome. Thank you. Next time though, Matt, you can bring the dessert. Next time, I'm thrilled to be joined by a culinary legend, one half of the Hairy Bikers and one of the nicest guys I've ever met. I'm talking about Dave Myers and he gets the first taste of a brand new dish which has been in development for over two months. Also, if you want to hear more from our chat about all things Michelin Guide, we'll be releasing a bonus episode on Monday, so make sure you check that out too on Michelin Monday. For more information about Seasoned, check out my website www.tommybanks.co.uk or check us out on social media. If you've enjoyed the episode, please leave us a positive rating and a review. It would mean an awful lot to me and it really helps to support us and get this podcast off the ground. Most importantly though, tell your friends, tell someone else you've enjoyed it. Maybe they'll join us on our journey too. Seasoned is a What's the Story podcast. It's hosted by me, Tommy Banks, and produced by Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis.